0: will bring you So let's talk
2: about it Good morning everyone. This is Fran Lewis and this is MJ Network. MJ in memory of my sister Marcia Joyce. and this is going to be absolutely the best of the month of January. Dr. Maxine Thompson is here and she's going to talk about, based on a true story, she she, author shares her experience living with a white family and the friends she made and the obstacles she faced. But let's tell you something about Dr. Maxine first. A former social worker of 23 years, Maxine currently resides in California, where she keeps herself busy supporting artists through her Maxine Thompson Literary and Education Services. Maxine is making her mark in the linen she really has in publishing fields, opening doors once closed to black writers and bringing new emerging writers with intriguing storylines and characters with depth and texture with her, such as the book we're going to talk about, Lineage. Good morning, and how are you today?
1: Oh, good morning, friends. Thank you for having me on the show, and good morning to everyone. Um,
2: yes, I'm looking today, to Monday see who's going to listen.
0: This yes, this book is too. really
2: exciting. So could you give us a little background about it, and how come you decided to share this story?
1: Well, this story, um, I wrote it when I was 16. That year, I kept a journal. When I lived with this white family, I was the first black to attend St. Francis. High School in Traverse City, Michigan. And the mother and I developed a bond because she was an artist. She uh, did sculptures. And as a result of that, I had this faded manuscript. I tried to publish it once when I was 30, maybe 38, but they wanted to charge me to rewrite it, and I felt like I needed to write it myself. Mm. And then uh, when I turned 65, that's when there were so many murders that took place in the black community. Mm. Um, I mean, just that July, the first one that took place was uh, Alton Sterling. Then a day later, there was a murder of Philando Castillo, who was murdered right in front of his stepdaughter and his uh, fiance. Mm. And then on July 7th, so on July 5th, there was Alton Sterling with a police shot the man for selling CDs in front of a liquor store, which he had been doing, but that's because there was so much poverty down there in Louisiana. That was Baton Rouge. Mm-hmm. And then um, the next day on July 7th, Micah Xavier Johnson ambushed and Bush fired upon a group of police officers in Dallas, killing five officer, officers and injuring nine others. And it just really moved me because, I called that the Summer of Blood. It made me think of the riots I grew up through. I I grew up in a riot when I was 16, the Detroit riot, twice. One took place in July of 67, and then when Martin Luther King was assassinated, Mm. there was another riot that took place in April of 1968. So this made me say it was for such a time as this because the family used to ask me to go ahead and publish the book, but at that time, the way I published it, it just really made it look like the white savior complex that I didn't know anything until I lived with the white family. And I didn't know how to explain what black life was like because we didn't have that many books. And in the 12th grade, my uh, Jewish school teacher, she got, she developed a writing class or a literature class for black students we had. Mm. uh, We read Malcolm X, and she got me a collection of black writers, and she did a lot of things because I wrote a story. I wrote a newspaper article saying that the reason everyone was getting high, like in the song, I'm doing fine on cloud nine, is because there Mm -hmm. was no equality in the black community. So, you know, from that, I realized what I needed was to understand my culture. So I'm glad that I waited. And I kept the words exactly as I said them at 16. I had that voice at 16. And it was hard to even type it because I said, oh, my goodness, I can't believe how self-centered and narcissistic (laughs) I was, but that is 16. And you don't have that great of a world view to be able to tell the story. So I'm Mm -hmm. glad I waited to tell it now, and I had a different insight. In it, how did you feel when you read it, Fran?
2: You know when I read it, I felt like I was living it with you, to be very honest. I felt like Justine was talking to me. I grew up in the South Bronx. It was a tough area, so I do understand you know what you were going through when you were younger, and I couldn't go outside at night either. It was you know you had to be careful. I just felt like I was reading it, and it was like speaking to me, and I gave her so much courage. How did you create her? I mean, that's hard. It was a it was an exchange program, right? And well, none, they no didn't one didn't
1: exchange none, in <laughs> Go ahead. You were
2: the only one that decided to do it. Nobody, none of the white families would live with a black in a black neighborhood. They were they just wouldn't do it. So how come you do, you decided to do it? How did you create Justine? And when you got there. And met Veronica. How did you feel about it?
1: Okay. Well, this thing was uh, loosely based on me. The only thing that I changed is where I would interject things that happen in the future and tell, you know, Mm -hmm. some of the things that happened, like how my sister came to visit me and how when she passed, I was with her. My older sister, she was, you know, the same way you felt towards your sister. was very close, and and she was seven years older. And back then, if you were the oldest girl in a black family, a lot of times you did, you were like the second general in charge you took care of. The other mm. kids, you washed, you cooked, you did a lot. So that, um, there are times I interject and I jump ahead and tell what happened to the person. And I told about the riots, how uh, they rolled through the streets with a bullhorn saying, we will shoot you if we see you. And they did. There were 42 deaths, I believe. I, I got the, f- uh, the figures off my research from people who got killed going out there riding. but people were just tired of being mm. disenfranchised. They were tired of being unemployed and underemployed. And at that time, the average black family made $2,000 a year. And most of the people I grew up with had at least six children. I know there were six of us at that time.
0: Mm.
1: and my mother then had a late child which made seven but she didn't really grow up when we grew up you know we grew up uh more as a unit the six of us and but that was the typical family and people kept their house clean they ate every day now you didn't have the best food you ate a lot of beans and Mm -hmm. a lot you know chicken was a big deal on sunday you might not have got two pieces but no one was sick. People got their shots, and I look back I say we were very, very healthy. We didn't have health insurance, but people knew a lot. My mother knew a lot about the herbs and she knew a lot of natural things to take care of us with and I've been listening to the news where the white families are saying that the black the white children don't need to learn about racism about slavery. Why not? We grew up in school where they didn't even show us in books. Like I said, when I wrote mm-hmm. that article, the teacher got so upset, she went and found black books. I think one was Black Voices. Uh, she she was just so upset to know that that was how some black people felt and how I felt. So they did represent us. So it makes me angry that now they're saying they don't need to talk about it. They didn't say that when little Ruby Bridges was taunted at six years old, being the first to integrate that school in, uh, in the South. You know, when they Uh sent, uh, what did I call them? I said, this is an example. When I went, there were two other black girls that came after I got there. The Little Rock Nine, that was in 1957. They spit on them. They had to have the National Guard take them to school. Uh So this happened in 1967. And it was in the north, but it was still racism. It was kind of a subtle underlying racism, then there was the white privilege, which I didn't understand why they had more. Their mother was able to stay home. My mother did day work, meaning she cleaned white women's houses. And um, a lot of times she didn't get home till late at night coming on the bus. My father was a construction worker, and he would be laid off sometime through the winter months, many times. And we made it somehow, you know different, like I say, I wrote a poem recently, I say, you're walking on floors you didn't scrub, and through doors you didn't open, and out of that day work, my mother, I became a literary agent, a writer, a social worker, my sister became an international journalist because she lived in Japan and Paris, and she's a poet, now she's beginning to win awards for her poetry, her name is Sonya Van de Loach. and, um, One brother, he was an engineer. Another brother was an accountant, and then later they became a McDonald's business owner. He and his wife, Mm -hmm. daughter, and I think they have about ten McDonald's now. So you know, you never know. Black people have worked hard in this country,
2: and one Mm -hmm. of
1: my things in my book was about reparations. There's no way we can catch up when they've had five, six generations ahead to get ahead of us. And when I think of all the money that's been the wealth transfer that's been made from grandparents to white young um, millennials they're doing much better than black millennials now they get student loans that they have to pay off for the next mm-hmm. 20 30 40 years and might not ever get it paid off whereas a lot of the white counterparts are able to get money from their grandparents which a lot of whites say well we we're not the reason we had that they had slavery, and it's not our fault, but they're benefiting from the the free labor that uh, the slaves that uh, you know African Americans provided for them. They're mm-hmm. benefiting because they got wealth that stayed in their family. A lot of them have farms that their uh, grandparents leave them. A lot of them able to go into business because they had money, like Jeff Bezos. His parents gave him two hundred fifty thousand to start Amazon. You know, a lot of black families don't have anything to leave their children when they die. So that's the other underlying theme I had in my book is reparations, that there's no way we could ever make this thing equal. You know, we could start businesses so, so that it will be equal instead of us just having uh, 1% of the wealth in this country, and it's gotten worse since the pandemic. So many people oh. became billionaires. Have you noticed that?
2: Oh, yeah, without a doubt. You know something? This pandemic has got me more angry than before. I grew up in the South Bronx, and I paid for my education. My grandparents didn't give me any money. When I wanted to go to college, I, my father said to me, I'll send you wherever you want to go. I said, I'll pay for on to go. I, I never took anything from anybody because I felt that it wasn't their place to pay for my education. If I wanted to get go to Hunter College, I went to Hunter College, and I paid for my books, my own, and I got a region scholarship. We, we lived in an apartment that was as big as my thumb. And mm. my parents, my grandparents paid, like, my grandfather came here uh, from Poland, and he sold apples on a street corner. That's how he supported mm. five kids. And then my grandmother mm. died, and then he had to marry somebody else. He married my sister, thank God. So I, I understand it. it's hard. And as far as learning about racism, they need to understand other people. Kids today don't understand other people they don't understand where they're coming from and they don't understand where you went through as a matter of fact when I saw what they were doing the dedication to Dr. King I don't think they did enough I don't think the kids really understand what he did I mean when I taught they understood I was lucky though I had a professor in Lehman College uh, that was uh, part of the uh, movie King so he he showed the movie in class and we got to see Dr. King so that was like Mm -hmm. exciting so tell mm-hmm. us where the Barrett family lived, and Veronica and the children. How come she took in all these children, and how did you feel about them?
1: Well, she didn't take in anybody else. That yeah, I was probably the last one. Just you. Yep. That was such a challenge. And she had um, foster children through the years, and you know she was a housewife, so that probably was a little supplement. But when I saved with it, there was no money given because. this was an experiment. I got a free lunch. And Mm. in fact, I was able to get a four-year scholarship to college. And so I think Mm. that year I was there, I developed really good uh, study habits. And the thing, I look back, I say Detroit school system had to be better than some of the schools that are turning out kids now, because here I went to all-white school and I was at the top of the class. And there were some things I had learned in the Detroit public school. I had you know, I was a avid reader, and that, I believe, I always tell people readers are leaders, and I've not read, one of the things that frustrated me growing up is that I couldn't find any books about black people, and I found one mm-hmm. when I was about eight, about a little black girl that went to a farm, I think her name was Melody, and I've looked for that book since then, I believe it's out of print, and so I, I just know what, it is so frustrating when you're you when you born writer, which you don't know that at the time, and mm. you can't find any books that reflect you and show people that look like you. And so I started getting books when I was uh, 17 that year in the 12th grade when the teacher introduced the black books. Then I became an English major, and I was able to get black books in college. And the one was The Man mm. Who Cried I Am by John A. Williams, and it was about a plot to kill all the black people and put them in concentration camps. And he was called the King Alfred Plot. And I've always, you know, it was a thriller, but it was also, I felt it had a of truth in it. And then to get up here in 2020 and see the thing, like in my, I had to keep rewriting my dedication because, um, I don't even think I put, what's the one, they put the foot on his neck. I get so upset I can't even remember his name. After, uh, where the police put his foot on his neck. Um, his mm-hmm. I George it. Floyd? Uh,
2: George Floyd. Oh, God, I saw that.
1: Yeah, George uh, Floyd, yes. And it upset oh me. In, in my addendum, I had said dedicated to the memory I had to add. First, I started with Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, Alton Sterling, so yeah. Castile, Michael Brown, 12-year-old Tamir Rice, and Eric Garner. Then I added, dedicated to the memory of Balsam Jean, who was shot in his own apartment on September 6, 2018, by an off-duty Dallas police officer, and to the mem- memory of Atiana Jefferson, who was shot through a window in her home on October 12, 2019. I remember that. By Fort, yeah, by Fort Worth, Texas police officer. And this was the 400th year since Africans were brought to this country in chains. when I wrote the book. And I wrote That's this so book. I started in 2016, and the copyright is 2019. But it's just something, you know, all the, you know, we see it. I mean, it's economic disparity like we've never seen before. Now we have all this these super rich people. They've got so much money, they're just buying up to them up in the sky just to fly up there and come back down when there's mm-hmm. people that are starving and I live in Los Angeles area and there's so many homeless people just laying in the street. And mm-hmm. yet there's money to just go up in the sky when there could be money to you know, have fair housing for people and the rent is so high here, it's over two thousand a month. It's maybe it's like New York. If you might could get a one bedroom for nine fifty. Wow. And um, that's a it's, lot. It's, it's right. It's just so much disparity. And when I was young, I, I, I knew something was wrong. I didn't know what it was. It was like I was looking through a grill and looking at the world of what the halves mm-hmm. had. And like I said, they were, um, the Beards were a middle class family. And once, once she told me her husband made 20000 But when mm. you can get, when you're not redlined, you know, her husband was a salesman. And he would just come home, you know, on the weekends, and and I think he drove from town to town or whatever he was selling. But she was able to be an independent woman. You know, she ran a family while he was gone, Mm -hmm. and she did her artwork. And, you know, she was kind of ahead of her time because I was comparing her to my mother, Mm -hmm. being a black mother, to a white mother. And I know how my mother was so tired all the time because she would work, and she'd come home sometimes it would be ten at night when she got home from on the bus, but before her life was over, my mother was able to travel and we had put money towards them going on a cruise and she, you know she' based mm-hmm. on several cruises, and she had flown almost every month the year that she died. she had gone out of state she died december first ninety three so you know she did get her um, I guess you can call redemption later, but she had such a hard life when she was young and her gra- her grandmother who raised her for about twelve years till she died, mm. she lived with her grandparents. Um, they would have been my great grandparents. They mm. um they had eighteen children and a lot of those kids helped raise the younger ones. So, I mean it turned out to be a really from what I found out about my family history on my mother's side, they, they turned out to be really good people, you know, they were, some of them got education way back then, and some went to college back then, my mother's first cousin just passed at 106 a couple of years ago, and she was one of the, she finished college young, and uh, she was divorced, they had two sons, but they, and they became an attorney and an Architect, but she also was one of the uh, librarians who went and volunteered to help straighten out the. It was called mm-hmm. the Writers' uh, Project, federal project where they did a study of all the living slaves in the at the end of the thirties during mm-hmm. the Depression, and they gave their life story. In fact, I, I'm doing a book on. A fictional book on slavery, and I, I've had to do a lot of research. And uh, it, the book is called um, "Not This One." How the word is passed that that one is also about slavery. But let me see that I bring this book with me. I'm at my daughter's house. Let me see it. Here it is. Oh, here it is. Remembering slavery, and mm. um. It has all these different accounts about slavery that was given to them. It's the Federal Writers Project, directed first by John A. Lomax, then by Benjamin A. Bakken, and finally by Sterling A. Brown. It took up the task that black scholars had begun in the 1920s, and it's where they interviewed the different surviving slaves, and they told their actual stories. And there's a picture of one guy who had been beaten, so bad that might be in my other research book but he his his back looked like like spider webs on him. they were i mean i guess this is where they key load after they beat him and so you know slavery was no joke some some families if they were the slaves that worked on the inside and generally they were the mulatto kids that were like in jefferson's case that were Related to them, they worked on the inside of many slaves and had shoes. they had one outfit uh or maybe one or two dresses they and some of the girls didn't even wear clothes till they got older, so you know it it was just mm-hmm. ripe with all types of molestation because of how they treated the kids so bad and yet, in spite of all that African Americans have gone through, they have been some of the greatest contributors to this country with jazz, with music, mm-hmm. with um, all types of things that have been created by black people from Stop Might, open heart search, just so many things that uh, it's just a miracle So something special about us as a people that we were able to survive through all this degradation and still, as Maya Angelou used to say, they Dr Maya my she would say, "Still I rise, you know you can talk about me with your lies, and yet still I rise, so we have been through something, and so I felt like this book was something I need it was for such a time as this that I needed to write it when I was older and understood what what I brought to the table from my history because you know we have a culture, a rich culture with true with music, with understanding, with poetry. It's just a lot.
2: Go ahead. I, I just don't understand why. Um, when I grew up, I learned about everybody, and we talked about everything. And, we you know, we you know, I didn't even look. People looked the same to me. I never treated anybody any different than anybody else. But I really think that what you're writing, it's really too bad that it's not in the schools. It's really too bad that teachers are not teaching today. They're just giving assignments and just throwing it out. They're not even doing quality education. I can see from my nieces and nephews in college, and it's sad because I'm surprised your book isn't in a library that people could actually take it out and read it. Especially this one, lineage. It, people need people need to learn about uh, about what you went through and what your family, black families, went through. So when we're talking about this book. Um, when what happens when with Veronica? Um, did you have any problems getting along with her? And what did, what was your relation? Well, your relationship with your mother. You got to see her when you came home from the holidays. Did your feelings change about where you lived?
1: Uh yeah, so stuff. Well, when I left, I hated it. I didn't see nothing good about my mm-hmm. neighborhood. Nothing good about race. And but after I went. And lived the way, even though I saw skiing, I saw nice farms that I went to, and, um, I, you know, I'd been exposed to a lot more. It was funny, when I came home, I had more of a love for every black face I saw and looked into. I didn't I didn't look at how raggedy the neighborhood looked to me. I kind of started seeing a strength and a protectiveness and then a camaraderie that, that I felt. In the closeness with my own race that I hadn't felt before, because see the way we were raised, we we had white people that lived in the neighborhood. They were mainly Hungarians, but they mm-hmm. lived across the tracks. Now there was a Hungarian family that lived next door to us, so I knew other races. But we basically, when we went to school, that's when we were in for a culture shock. They treated. With, I have a book called mm-hmm. The Liberty Tree, my first novel. And they treated the white students better than they treated black students. And um, I was a child that obviously I learned fast, and I would put my hands up and have an answer. Uh-huh. And the teacher would give it to the white students because most of my teachers were white. I think I had two black teachers
0: uh-huh.
1: all the way up through about the ninth grade. And most of my teachers were white, so you know they, I mean they would find a way to put you out of school. I remember getting kicked out uh-huh. in about the. 3rd or 4th grade, just anything. They, you know, it was already, they call that the pipe uh, to the prison line. They start with elementary. They start trying to mess you mm-hmm. it up when you're young. And, it, I mean, you have so many strikes against you. It's a miracle that you even live to get grown and see adulthood. But it was safer then. There wasn't as much. Um, and there weren't as many games. You know, they had the little what they called the Delray Gang. I think it was called the Sacred Seven or something, but they weren't really, like, I've seen the gangs mm. that, when I moved to L.A., with the Crips and the Bloods, they were really bad. It's gotten better now. A lot of them have grown up and tried to give back to the community or they've gotten killed or went to prison. So it's not as bad, but there were gangs, there were... um you know, like I said, the biggest thing that affected my childhood was the riots. Childhood, but I was a young adult. And trying to walk to work with all this smoke and never, I still mm-hmm. have memories of what it felt like um, doing the riots. Can I read a little from my book here?
2: Yeah, go ahead.
1: Okay. Uh, 9, what page are we on?
2: Because I, I have the book in front of me. Nobody's getting this one.
1: Okay, this is on um, page 25 at the top. Uh, t- well, really, yeah, I can say it at it. the bottom. Okay, uh, at the bottom. Okay, good. And disenfranchised, disenfranchised black people rise up. People are throwing stones, bottles, and Molotov cocktails at the police. Snipers are shooting from blacked-out windows. Arrests are made for breaking and entering and disturbing the peace. 9,000 National Guardsmen have been deployed by President Lyndon B. Johnson to protect property. He also sends U.S. Army troops to quell the violence. The National Guard surrounds the city like vultures. The governor, George Romney, describes it as hooliganism and lawlessness. Cars yeah. and houses were blazed until finally the, the riot ends. Paddy wagons, the derivative of the old slave patrollers, have arrested 7,200 people most of them black. The Big Four, Mm -hmm. a group of bigoted white police, notorious for beating up black people in Delray, are seen rolling through the neighborhood. People, both black and white, provide food and risk their lives to do it. Five days later, when the riot comes to an end, 43 are dead, 33 black and 10 white. Ironically, as if they were surrounded by angels, none of the rioters from Delray are killed, but death remains on every corner, waiting in the form of dope. It's right after that. That's when it seemed like the
2: dope became, uh, you know, really bad. It's just, it's 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 so sad because people really don't understand. It says at the bottom, the dope man stood on each corner like a sentinel. That that's scary. Um, mm-hmm. where, I, where I grew up, you know, it's funny. I went to um, my my public school. And the funny part was that they didn't judge you, which is really by color or race. They judged you by intelligence and who your parents were. And unfortunately mm-hmm. for me, my mother was a PTA president, and my aunt was a teacher in the school. So a lot of time, <laughs> my sixth-grade teacher treated me as if I was not there if for whatever reason. And mm-hmm. I, I was smart. I, I don't think I raised my hand until I got into seventh grade. That was really wow. sad. Uh, yeah, the children, we had a mixed, mixed race. And my best favorite teacher was Mrs. Jackson in the fourth grade. She was a black teacher. And something mm-hmm. happened, and she came to my defense. She was amazing. I didn't look at people as colors, but I, I was hurt when I was in the sixth grade, and I won a contest, a writing contest. That's when I knew I had some kind of talent. And my sixth grade mm-hmm. teacher said, her aunt probably wrote it. I said, my aunt didn't write it, lady. And I never answered back, I guess I did. I said, how dare you, you whatever. Uh, I wrote this in class. Mm-hmm. The class voted. School, the principal voted. The state voted that it was the best writing composition on whatever the topic was, and she refused to send mm-hmm. it in. And after that, I just sat there for the rest of the year, never said a word. And I told my mm-hmm. mother, I said, I, I, I hated going to school. I got the measles. I was so happy. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, no matter how you turn it, it's wrong. So there were social differences in both ha- places. What happens When Veronica tries to help you face differences, how did you react to that? And then tell us about how this memoir relates to Dr. Martin Luther King.
1: Okay, well, it started, Veronica and I would have little disagreements because she would say, well, you should reach out and try to be more friends. When I first came, Mm -hmm. different white students came and picked me up and took me to town. But I would feel Mm -hmm. so out of place when I would be the only black person at the Different mm-hmm. um, gatherings; they would have a soda shop or whatever. And then I had gone to a farm with them. But after that, no one really came and visited. But two black girls came from Grand Rapids, and we were able to uh, do our little socializing together. We would go, we would dance, and we would go out around the city by ourselves on the weekend. So that that got me through. But Verna would always, you know, it seemed like she just was. Uh, I wasn't used to my mother saying anything. My mother was quiet, and she was tired, and she wouldn't say anything. Mm-hmm. So here I find a woman that is uh, talking about self-esteem. She didn't use the word self-esteem. She used the word self-image. And this is it. And I mm-hmm. would say, you know, you walk in my shoes, then you can tell me, and you see what, you, you know, I, I was seen I had seen so much by then that she told me a couple times, you think you know more than me, which I was a know-it-all at that age, but I had seen a lot, and because I had trusted her, I had opened up, but then she turned around and would get on me, but, you know, I looked back, it was fine, I probably needed that more self-examination, which has helped me as a writer,
0: mm-hmm. and,
1: uh, you know, and I would tell her, we don't measure ourselves, you can't measure me by the same yardstick, I remember that was the exact words I felt up because it's different, now I understand what was different. They had white privilege. She didn't tell me all my kids can go to mm-hmm. college if they want to. And um, and so it was just so ironic that I end up going and I finished before her oldest son did, but he did finish. He's a writer. Now I'm working on, I've worked on one of his books, <laughs> you know, and he mm-hmm. had just gotten back in touch. And the year I turned 65, I'm 70 now. And, you know, so it, it's just, I just feel like it was, Uh, part of my life that we would become. I mean, we did have some kind of knockdown, (laughs) loud Mm -hmm. and cheap. Because like once I had babysittered, she had got me some jobs babysitting. So I kind of became well known as a babysitter and I got my little extra money from that. And I was at a white person's house babysitting and I found a letter where they had written to um, whoever, telling them, oh, we hope these niggas don't move up here to Traverse mm. City because Traverse City, even to this day, is still a pretty white town, and people go up there. It's one of the most beautiful towns, I understand. Uh, another person I know was telling me that that's where she and all her friends would go from Ipsilanti for um, travel. That would be their weekend getaway. It was about a six-hour drive, and I would take the bus, so it would take a little long. And uh while I was there, that's when Martin Luther King had got assassinated Let me see
0: what time it is.
1: okay, uh, I'm gonna read from this section from his assassination. When I come okay. downstairs at that afternoon, okay, thank you after school, Veronica's eyes are flooded with tears. What's the matter? I asked. Just seeing Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, but once I'm speechless. The newspaper reported mm. Martin Luther King, Jr., clergyman, prominent civil rights leader, and a Nobel Peace Prize laureate who was known for his use of nonviolence was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, at the Lorraine Motel on April 4, 1968. Uh, the next day, on the bus on my way home from school, I hear a male student who was not in my class say that his father said, good, they killed Martin Luther King." What? I am too flabbergasted to say anything. From that point on, it seems as if the bottom has fallen out of the whole world. And somehow, mm-hmm. my continued stay in the city doesn't seem right during this period of national mourning. I don't say anything, but I become furious. I can't take anymore, and I know I have to go home and be with my people. Linda and Lori, the other two black students, also went home to Grand Rapids. Like wildfires, riots are starting back on Up all over the country in over 100 cities, Detroit, Newark, Washington, D.C., I don't care. I just want to go home. I want to be with my people. My 18-year-old brother, Leo, now has a job and sends money for me to catch the bus home to Detroit. When the bus is hurling down the highway in northern Michigan, I blank out. I'm too numb to notice who's on the bus. As i near Detroit, I look into and love every black face I see. I see the looting, the fires, the windows crashing, but it doesn't bother me. I understand it. People are hurting. When I get off the bus, I'm met by my brother Anthony, the Howard University College student. I'm surprised by his kindness. Even he has come home to be together with our family. And this is a scene change. I don't say anything to mama or daddy as we watch the funeral on TV. We just all sit close together in silence. We draw comfort from each other's presence mm-hmm. without saying a word. Looking at our television, I'm amazed at how stoic and graceful Coretta Kane, the young widow, sits throughout the funeral with the whole world looking on. She never sheds a tear publicly, and she is the lunch pan that holds her four grieving children up. That Sunday, Mama cooks a ham and potato salad. We listen to an LP of Mahalia Jackson singing Calvary. The house was shrouded in an unspoken breeze that reminds me of what I later learned was called the Middle Passage. We are broken. We have lost our leader. What will happen next? But right now, in this moment, we have each other. It seemed like it happened near Easter Sunday, and it feels ironic that Mike, that Martin Luther King, Jr. was sacrificed like Jesus Christ. And, uh, okay, let me finish this one. When I returned to the city to finish the school year, Veronica and I listened to Martin Luther King's I have a dream speech on the radio. Mm. When you say he has an accent, Veronica asked regarding Dr. King's southern vernacular and, and enunciation. He was an eloquent speaker, she says. I want to debate how Martin Luther King Jr. had refused to fear the blackness out of his speech, but somehow oh, something holds me back. When you say he has an accent, I challenge Turning back to the sink where she's beginning to prepare dinner, Veronica acts as a great man, and um, and I had written that when I was young, so I know that came from that conversation. But she used to get on me because she would tell me I talk like I came from the south, and that's how they they um, mm-hmm. that's how the white man identifies you. But I had a black they call that. I go to different conferences now on ebonics. And I I grew up with people who were the children of the South. Most of our parents, that came from the South. So I had a Southern accent, and I still have it. And mm-hmm. I don't try. They call it code switching. A lot of black people, when they get around whites, they try to speak and the way they feel mm-hmm. white people talk. And, you know, we're the only race that enunciate. We have professors that are from China, from... Um, you know, different countries, Asian and Spanish, they keep their Spanish accent, and they still say, oh, they're brilliant, whether they understand them or not, <laughs> you know. We're the only people that are expected. We lost a language when we came here from uh, the Middle Passage. Uh, we were different tribes that were thrown together, so we developed uh, kind of a Creolized language that... Um, you know, they, some call it ebonics, and some, like the people that live on those North Sea islands, North Carolina, the islands off of there, they have a language that's very close to the original African, Western African languages, and we have certain speech constructions that our people still use, such as uh, for past tense, sometimes they say, oh, he been not went to the store. That means he went to the store already, and that, that's something that's ongoing, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's, um, and it feels good when you get to a point that you're not trying, when you're unapologetically black, you're no longer trying to, well, I've got to, well, one of the worst things that ever happened to our community was integration, because we used to have our own hospitals, our own funeral homes, mm-hmm. our own um, schools, and many of the people I'm seeing that have made marks in the world went to historically black colleges, such as Toni Morris, and she went to Howard. It's just most of the people who went to um, black colleges, one of the doctors, I listened uh Greg Carr and Karen Hunter, I listened to them on Saturday. They started a new group called Narrative with a K, where blacks are getting the history that, okay, at one point we had Sunday schools and churches that wrote books about the things that we established, but a lot of those books fell out of print. And now we're reading um, the, what is it called, The Miseducation of the Negro. And mm-hmm. these are books that, you know, didn't stay in print. So now they're going back trying to get these books in print, trying to say, they call it, who are we to each other? And that's what I like about, um, he has a class every Saturday. You can listen to it on YouTube. And he really tells how, we, you know, because they're giving a lot of white scholars a lot of money to write our stories, stories about who we, you know, the people who made a mark in our world. And a lot of them were, at the time that they made the mark, They like the way they did uh, Muhammad Ali. When he when he stood up and said, no, I'm not going to fight this Vietnam War. These people didn't do anything to me. They took his mm-hmm. titles and they took his belt. When he was at his prime at his best fighting years, they kept him where he couldn't fight for years. And so whenever, and then like Martin Luther King in his last book where he was talking about economic um, equality. He wasn't just talking about equality to be able to sit at the Mm. same restaurant a white person. That's when he came up assassinated. You know, whenever a black person is, when they see their gifts that they could fight, like Joe Lewis, he could really fight. But when they speak up for racism and all the different disparity of treatment and the racial uh, imbalance as far as that we had redlining, that kept us out of economic justice. Um, we had, you know, you couldn't even buy a house in different neighborhoods. When And then they also now they underpriced houses in black neighborhoods and people can't really you know, develop wealth from their houses if it's in different black areas. I was just fortunate that mm-hmm. the area I picked in Los Angeles, um, I, I live in Inglewood. They just built uh, two stadiums for one, I know, and I think they have another one they're building. It's a football stadium. It's made the property values really go up. But during 2008, we lost a lot of the homes that we had as black people, and that was where a lot of our wealth went. So, I mean, it's really discouraging for blacks, for young black people coming out of college now and they can't find a job. And many of them are working, riding Lyft or Uber. You know, that's their job. That's not a uh, business.
2: It's, it's sad because um, the area where I grew up, where I taught, was a black area, a tough black area, but I never had a problem. And I feel bad for those children now because they're not getting the education that they need. The teachers are, I feel like they're, I don't know if they said they don't care, or because they're doing, um, they can't do individual attention. Their kids have to wear masks all day. Uh, Too many children. My nephew just got over it. My nephew's eight, and he goes Mm -hmm. to an integrated school, and he just got over COVID. He said, because one of his Mm -hmm. classmates had it. I I was in tears. I couldn't believe it. It's horrible. Mm -hmm. So, before we end, let me just, I don't want to forget, on to, um, to, uh, Wednesday we're going to talk about, I have some New York Times authors, we're going to talk about the last line of a novel. On the first, David Putnam, The Sinisters, and on the third, Brian Freeman, who took over the Jason Bourne series, will be on and have a lot more coming up in February and in March. Um, I am honored that Chess Garanton is going to do a show with me in June. I was like totally flabbergasted yesterday. And we're going to talk mm-hmm. about, um, listen to me and the fact that you need to listen to your mother when she tells you what to do, because mother's know best. Trust me. I learned that a long time ago. So <laughs> yeah, my, my mom believed in perfection. If I didn't get a, she was tough. I don't know why not my mm-hmm. sister, my brother, but if I didn't get a hundred on a test, I had to write it over until I got it right. I'm serious. Mm-hmm. Um, There was no such thing as getting a 99. It wasn't good enough. I said, Mom, but today, so what? Lineage is a bridge gap between races and understanding. If the schools ever bothered to change, seriously, what messages would you want young people to get after they read your book or understand what you went through when you were growing up? What message would you want them to get today?
1: To never give up.
2: Um, you know, and
1: thinking of my mother because she was wasn't mm-hmm. a big talker, I had to go back and remember things she said. But one of the things she said that uh she said <clears throat> um one of her things was good news is as quiet as a church mouse. The bad news mm-hmm. travel with the speed of lightning. But she was one of the things she would always say, You represent me. You represent me and she uh wanted us to have a better life than her. You know, and now mm-hmm. I understand that you have to almost be a grown person to put it together. Oh, my mother used to say that. She used to say and she would always look at people who are your family, who are your people and many of us are sold mm-hmm. away from our family. So I think from the research I've done after slavery, a lot of people looked for their families and they tried to find them. And they and then they had a thing, we had our own little class system, you know, the people who mm-hmm. worked and for the city, we're considered the upper-class people in our neighborhood. We all lived together in the same neighborhood. There was no such mm-hmm. thing as you had moved to the suburbs, so you didn't. You just only lived with brown whites. All the blacks, some were school teachers, some were garbage collectors, and there was no, like I say, at one time when we were segregated, we really had hospitals, we had more businesses, and every time, Our community tried to pull up, such as what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They burned it down. Mm -hmm. There are so many cities, we don't even know all of that, Rosewood that were thriving as blacks by themselves because they had their own self-contained economy, that uh, the whites would come and lynch the men and burn the town down. So... You know, like, and they would make up something that happened. Oh, like the one in Tulsa, they said a black man had got on the elevator and mm-hmm. molested the woman that touched her, and then they burnt that town down. They just recently tried to make some type of uh, reparation for it by having a show. And there's a few people of the families that are still surviving. I think they gave them some money, but my thing is there was money for the Native Americans, for all the land that was taken from them. And they still have a lot of um, casino. They gave money to the Jews in 2015. Obama made sure that some of the Jews that were over here in this country got some reparations. You know, but for some
0: reason,
1: Obama didn't agree that there should be any reparations for African Americans. But one thing he Wasn't a descendant of slavery. He, you know, he just had his father was from Africa. In fact, mm-hmm. he that was what you call a legacy. His father had gone to Harvard. And so you know, in the same fam, all these when you haven't gone through your parents being sharecroppers or your great grandparents having to work so hard. Like my grandmother had to work so hard, she didn't get to raise her children because she was at work. And mm-hmm. i know she paid. She took care. of, all her relatives with the money she made, she was so frugal, she would send money back, take care of the relatives during the depression. And when she died, uh someone would come out, Oh, we can we can just cremate her but my mm. um, mother's cousin said no. Sister took care of all of us during the depression. So that's the type of losses to families that happened. Now, my mother, she made a vow that she was going to try to be there for her kids, but then she had to go to work by the time I came up because there was no money. (laughs) And it was fine that she worked, but I just hate that she worked such long hours and so wore out. Mm -hmm. But now I go back and I scrape through what she said and what she taught me. She taught me how not to give up. She always said nothing is worse than a drunk woman. Which is true. It's worse when a woman is drunk and out in the street. You know, it's it's embarrassing mm-hmm. for her children. And now we're seeing more and more women that are on drugs or alcohol than we ever had. It's like people have lost that sense of family. And one thing, I always saw my mother get on her knees and pray. I, I, now I can't even hardly bend down, but I pray all day long now, you know. And so I say I had a praying mother. That's why we, I had a brother that went to Vietnam and he uh, saved his whole unit, and that was one of the ones in the riot that the police say, yeah, our criminals, mm-hmm. i say, well, this same criminal saved his whole unit and fought on the front lines for for a war that we didn't benefit from. And I've always said that uh, the good and we kicked America behind. That's why they don't talk about it there, but either, but I don't know. It's a lot, but one of the messages I want people to know is that you are um you have human dignity and you have a right to an education mm-hmm. and that you should reach out and get things. They have scholarships. I just went on a scholarship to a writing uh, residency, mm-hmm. and it was in Arkansas. Part of a place I would never heard of It was a writer's college, and they have all types of things like this, and we don't take advantage of. So, if, mm-hmm. you know, don't go by. If you live in a neighborhood with a lot of drug addicts, don't fall to the lowest because that makes you a zombie. I mm-hmm. think of the new zombie movies that that's almost reflective of people. I've seen people who've lost two and three generations. And when I was a social worker, most of my clients were uh, the victims of their parents being on crack cocaine. It was really bad in the eighties during the time I was practicing, and I left social work in ninety seven. And then now they got new drugs. Now they got the oxycodone. But since um, yeah, more, I know. Yeah, and now that more of the mainstream society has gotten on oxytocin, now it's considered as a uh, a disease, like alcoholism is now considered a disease. Because more mainstream people are alcoholics. I mean, if you look at TV, everywhere you look, someone hold a drink in their hand. And well, before really- we end, we
2: have about five minutes. Um, I know you have a broadcast tonight. Do you want to tell everybody that you have your is at 6 your time, 9 mine time, right?
1: Yes. I saw
2: it on it's Facebook. You have an interview tonight. coming.
1: Yes. It's, um, I'm interviewing Laura Goldstein, and she's an MD, and her book is The ICU Guide for Families, mm. Understanding Intensive Care and How You Can Support Your Loved Ones, because it is, it is bad. Um, my daughter works as a registered nurse. And she's been working with the pandemic, I mean, you know, with the Mm -hmm. families with COVID. And she's saying that a lot of times they've given them, I don't even want to say what that is, but a lot of the people have already passed. They're out of blood. They're out out of resources to help fight this. That's right. The average person will stay in the hospital three months with this COVID. And, And so it's keeping, if you get sick now, they might not even be able to take you in the hospital. It is really really bad so you need I figured this will help people to know what questions to ask and understand what the tools are going into
2: Yeah. when your mother was in the hospital wasn't she in intensive care near the end of her life my mother let me tell you something Maxine my mother I paid for her care I paid $6,000 mm-hmm. a month for her home care and to the hospital because she didn't have all this coverage yeah she was um, mm-hmm. in intensive care and what happened was, when it was right like three weeks before she died, this miserable doctor said to me, why are we bothering to save her life? She's going to go anyway. I said, I'm not leaving this hospital because I don't trust you anymore. It was horrendous.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And this was, yeah. you know, a white doctor. He thought he was really hot stuff. And I went to the head of the hospital. I said, this is my mom. I worked really hard to to keep her alive for 11 years, it cost me $6,000 a month. When she died, vaccine, and I'm still in debt, Mm. almost a half a million dollars, because until I got full Medicaid, I was paying for it, not Mm. my sister, not my brother, because you don't deserve Mm. your mother. Yeah, she was in intensive care, and when she died, I mean, I was in the hospital. I had just gone home to change and stuff. And I'll never forget this heartless person calls me up and she says to me, we don't know how to tell you this, your mother just expired. This was a nurse in the hospital. And I said mm-hmm. to her, my mother's not a parking meter, and you don't pay a quarter to, to in the meter to see that she's not going to expire. And I called the, the mm-hmm. doctor. This was at about 4 o'clock in the morning. She said, because she just expired. I said, you're going to expire very soon, too. It's horrible, yeah. Mm-hmm. Intensive care, mm-hmm. they don't always take care you know, they figured the right. person's gonna go. That's what anyway. happened with my
1: daughter in law. Yeah. Um, they had she had been to the emergency about three or four times in the past few months and she had had seizures and she passed earlier this month. Yeah. And my son was there for about two or three hours before they told him that she, you know, had expired and they just and that's how they did when my brother's wife died back in seventy two. They oh, she expired. But we I had to keep calling, keep calling up to the hospital. And the same happened to my son. So he he's just been devastated man. I said. They don't care. And these doctors are burnt out from this COVID. And, That's you know, right. They weren't hardly doing anything. It, <laughs> they really, you know, they just burnt out. They're they're mad and they're feeling like everybody should get the shot. And some people are dying that had the shot. I know a lady that just died that had all the shots. You
2: That's right. The shot shot helps to a point I think the saddest part My life was when my brother-in-law Decided that my sister was in the way of his social life And I came to the hospital She was in hospice and he pulled the plug on her I went nuts I said how could you pull the plug She's 50 something years old She's not old And the doctor, the neurologist And my heart doctor said she, she, her heart came back, everything came back They said that she had no brain waves I said, why can't you take one more EEG So that I know that this is the truth I, I mean In mm. the hospital, they didn't care They kept feeding mm, they her with morphine I, what? You, They just didn't care And you know, I wrote yeah. an empty letter I called the head of the hospital I called the administration mm. And I did it on my radio show I said, this is absolutely outrageous People just don't mm. care And I see, doctors, you're right I mean, I had to make a phone call the other day to my primary, and I he said, "Well, you're fine. Don't worry about it." I said, "How would you know? I'm not there." No, they don't see you now. They do um, inter-
1: virtual you know, interviews over the phone, virtual. And
0: I had yeah, And they charge you charges much Yeah, they charge you four hundred dollars for a phone, phone, phone. Uh,
1: I don't know exactly what they charge him with that. My last visit to my you doctor did. was that and is i've had to see an oncologist this last year because uh when i had oh. the surgery you know i had a cancer scare and so you know i'm still not out the woods and then they have all this uh you know all the doctors and hospitals are out of blood they're out of everything they are. So my daughter told me it's really bad and then when they keep people alive the family gets mad because they see worms in them because they've been keeping them alive but then it's taking up space for somebody who might can heal. And the people who heal the best are the people who have prayer. So everyone know the power of prayer. I believe that's what Mm -hmm. helped me. And they say the families, where the families are calling in on one of those TVs where you can see their face and talk to them and pray Mm -hmm. with them, even though they're kind of unconscious. It seems like those are the people who are healing. So I do believe in the power of God, and I know the power of prayer is what brought me through growing up as a as a female child in the ghetto. And now they call it the hood, but
2: I wouldn't well, trade nothing for in, my journey. So you're, this 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 is fantastic. So, where could everybody get copies of all your books and everything?
1: Uh, you can get them. You can get uh, lineage on Amazon. That's right now. I only have it on Amazon. I plan it. Get it on other places and um, they can get the ebony tree no pockets in the I love that or hostage of lies yeah and you can get hostage of lies on um, amazon and then i have ebooks that you can get, can get some are how to write a best selling um, novel or how oh, to write nice. best selling fiction so i have a lot of books that you can put them in google because now, sometime I notice they don't have all my books together on Amazon, and then you can find them that way. Oh, okay. yeah, I saw that this morning
2: when I was looking for them. But you know, it's funny if you Google yourself, you might find out that you're in China, Japan, and all sorts of all foreign countries. And then there are sites mm-hmm. that where they where they actually come download your book for free that you won't even know about. It's it's amazing. But th- this has yes. been. inspiring. This has been great. I want to thank you so much, everybody. Mm, You know, everybody needs to get. I don't care what. They they need to get vaccinated. People need to be safe. People need to be smarter. And you know what else? People need to be nicer. There needs to be some more kindness in this world. Because maybe if everybody was kind, this miserable virus would take a hike somewhere and and get out of our lives. It it just bothers (laughs) me because I walk in the street and people don't smile. And I say good morning, and they just look at me like, well, have a great day. The sun's shining. So, Maxine, Mm. stay in touch.
0: Thank you so
2: very much.
0: Everybody have a
2: beautiful day and blessed day. Thank you so much, and bye. Thank you.